Kia ora and welcome to Inside Parliament, a weekly catch-up where we discuss all of the political stories we've been covering this week for One News. We're coming to you live from the legendary uh, TVNZ Beehive studio. I'm Mikey Sherman. I'm Benedict Collins. And I'm Anna White. And Anna is our political reporter digital, so our online political reporter based here in Parliament uh, in the press gallery with us and she's joining us this week so welcome Anna. Thank you very much Mikey. Yeah are you looking forward to it? Uh, I'm a bit nervous but uh, (laughs) feeling good. I think it's going to be great. It's going to be great. So um, we usually start off with our pits and our peaks um, of the week so let's crack into it with you Benedict. What are you going to give us your... Pit. Where do you want to start? Pit? Why don't I start with Pitt? So I'm going up um, uh, to the United States shortly for a work trip, and this week I had to get my visa. Um, and if you've ever had like a mind-numbingly bad process that is trying to get a work visa uh, for the United States, I was nearly in tears a couple of weeks ago online trying to fill in the forms uh, where they go back, you know, not just your current job, your previous job, references there, um, your university education. And it was um, your birthday you know, as well. The middle name of your first pet. Yeah, that's right. It was kind of, it was brain damage. And then this week I had to go up to the US consulate and it's like going through US airport security again. You know, they take your smartwatch off you and your phone off you and then you queue for like an hour for like a three minute process and it costs hundreds of dollars. Do you um, have a smartwatch? So, yeah. Huh. Well, it records my steps and stuff. Okay. Um, um, anyway, better than going to like the Saudi um, embassy in Turkey, I guess. But um, oh. yeah, it was still rather <laughs> painful. Um, yeah, anyway, that was my pit. Yeah, sorry, my um, sympathy for your pit uh, ran out as soon as you said, I'm going to Hawaii for a work <laughs> trip, which basically means pina coladas mm. next to the, uh, on the beach. Um, so uh, my pit, um, my pit this week is actually um, about the um, Supreme Court ruling from last week, granted, um, but we're going to take a look at that story shortly. Um, but it basically um, upholds the High Court um, ruling um, around um, that um, there was a uh, that it, it breached basically um, the Bill of Rights. But anyway, um, I'm going to get to it when we talk about it later. But I think the fact that it's not a priority for the government to now address whether or not prisoners um, should have the right to vote, I think that's a bit of a um, pit. That is the pit of the week for me. Um, But we'll talk about it more Mm. later. Anna? Um, My pit was something that was said at the Pike River announcement this week. And it was that there's been 375 workplace deaths since Pike River in 2010. So, yeah, I thought that was a bit of a downer. So a lot of people don't come home at the end of the day, eh? It was. And I think what Anna Osborne said was that these people, you know, don't expect not to come home from work and their family don't expect not to have them home as well. So, yeah, that was my pitch. Yeah, I thought it was interesting also at that um, press conference where they paid tribute, the families paid tribute to Helen Kelly mm. um, and said, mm. you know, it was her that really uh, encouraged them, do not give up, keep fighting, keep fighting, don't back down. I thought that was kind of cool, you know, as well, that came That's out. It's really that. nice, actually, yeah. Mm. And on that note, um, let's look at our, our peaks yeah. Um, what was your peak this week, Benedict? Hey, so you remember last week we did the stories about the um, the, the junkets that uh, Trevor Mallard and Jerry Brownlee um, went on up to J- to Japan to watch the um, All Blacks sporting trip that suddenly became an important um, uh, trade mission, if you believe it. Hey, anyway, Trevor Mallard popped into the office with um, this a little uh, trinket from the junket. Hey, and so it is a scarf from the game between the. Um, 
Cherry Blossoms and the All Blacks. We'll hold it out here, guys. Scarfra. I think it's like a beer mat. Maybe it's a beer mat. And if you grab the other end. I can do that. So anyway, we're going to give away a prize this week on the um, uh, Inside Parliament. Tell you, my email address is benedict.collins at tvnz.co.nz. Now, the person who sends through the best joke about politicians um, being on junkets or just maybe best <laughs> political joke, you'll win this next week and I'll uh, read out your joke you during the, the podcast as well. Yeah, I think so. I Why love not? It. That's maybe, great. maybe we can make a team decision. But anyway, this is, there you uh, go. This is yours to, to win from the. Um, from the junket so that's my peak courtesy of the speaker yeah um my peak this week is that um i have won the chocolate fish um for naming this week's podcast now granted it was pretty basic pretty basic name under the microscope but um i'm stoked nonetheless so that's a quick peek from me and Not giving it away to the list to the watchers maybe the i'll list. put this in um if you if, if you win if the joke comp if you're lucky yeah. Uh, so my peak was actually we found out today that New Zealand has won the rights to the 2021 Women's Rugby World Cup, Yay. which is amazing because we've never had it in the Southern Hemisphere, despite New Zealand being by far the best team. You know, the Black Ferns are easily the best team. So that was my peak. It's awesome. You're looking forward to it? I'm very excited. I might have to do quite a few Auckland Whangarei trips. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and so we're going to kick off um, mm. uh, our stories this week by looking at something that Benedict um, pulled together for us. Tell us yeah, so they um, made an announcement this week. They um, updated the terms of reference that they had been on trial for the um, inquiry or the Royal Commission into Historical State Abuse. So let's have a look at this. Church is now under the microscope of a historical abuse inquiry. It's what the survivors wanted most. I myself was a very strong advocate for it remaining um, narrow around state care because of that duty of care, that responsibility that we have. But, you know, we had to listen, uh, and we have listened. It will be the largest royal commission uh, that the country has undertaken. The inquiry will cost almost $80 million and is expected to take four years. This is the cost of us hearing thousands of individuals who want to be heard. The announcement was welcomed today by the Catholic Church. I think it will help to create a society in New Zealand which is safe for children and for vulnerable adults, and that's very much our foremost concern. The expansion of the inquiry today means that New Zealanders who are abused in schools or in other settings run by religious institutions will have a chance to have their say to the Royal Commission. And of the $80 million budgeted for the inquiry, 15 will be set aside for counselling and support for survivors. Controversially, the Royal Commission originally planned only to hear from people abused in state care between 1950 and 1999. That's changed too. The terms of reference have now been expanded so that there is the discretion for the inquiry to take cases, to listen to cases before 1950 and after 1999. Surely one of the things that we're hoping that the Royal Commission will be able to do is to make recommendations about what is currently wrong with the way children are being cared for. The Royal Commission is expected to produce its final report in 2023. Look, this was a, um, uh, you know, a really interesting story. It was something that you know, Labour had campaigned on 
um, in opposition, saying it was really necessary. Um, so, th- so after putting out the terms of reference for uh, sort of consultation, they've come back. They've said, "Hey, we're going to open it up to religious institutions." Now, I went um, uh, this week up onto the terrace and talked to um, Sonia Cooper from Cooper Legal. And for many years, her law firm has represented people who have been abused while they've been in state care. And her argument to me, or her th- feeling, was that a lot of people who have been mistreated in state care, or sorry, in by religious institutions, have also been in state care. So she thought perhaps it wouldn't be too many extra people that, that would be included in the inquiry <clears throat> as as a result of this change. And she was really sceptical about um, the initial time frame um, from 1950, <clears throat> and then they were going to cut it off in 1999. And she said, that's ridiculous. Um, you know, surely you want to know what's happening now. People, you know, abuse didn't stop in 1999 or 2000. Um, it, it's continued, and surely if, you know, the Royal Commission is going to come out and try and make things better as well, as well as hearing historical cases, you'd think they'd want to be hearing from people, <clears throat> you know, who who, are, who have recently been in this situation as well. Uh, so I, I thought that was, you know, a pretty interesting take. And it's, so then what they have done is they've said, oh, the Royal Commission has discretion to hear cases after 2000, but uh, uh, you know, she was on um, the breakfast show this week, questioning like, "Well, what does that mean? They've got discretion, mm. but can they make findings about it?" And <clears throat> and I, I think the um, suspicious part of her wonders whether that cut off at 2000, and then like, "Oh, we'll have discretion around maybe hearing cases after it," is to protect officials who are still in their jobs now. Um, and she also raised the thing, of, you know, well, hey, Labor also came in at around that time for the last Labor government, and she was wondering whether it could be linked to that as well, trying to protect current um, you know, employees and politicians from um, criticism here. That's a big, that's a big call, eh? that, that last one, um, about whether or not they're, 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 there's a political motivation behind it. I mean, you, you'd definitely um, like to think that absolutely not, because that would just be outrageous. Um, but I did also um, think that, yeah, what she said in that, in that track about um, you know those who have been abused in more recent in more recent years, sort of mm-hmm. um, that their voice wouldn't be heard, or that their voice um, and their experiences aren't valued um, in the same way that perhaps those who were abused w- yeah, historically, which, seems bizarre, were, which right? is bizarre, yeah. um, and and obviously doesn't fill those people with confidence at all. Yeah. I think it's just the confusion as well. I mean, you know that like you said about them having discretion to look into those things. I mean. People want to know, rule it in or rule it out, basically, just so that it's clear yeah. cut um, what's what. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, Have the big, government big, big, big sort of big, big interesting um, issue there, though, to bring in the churches, though, because we know yeah. that, that historically um, there will be a lot of cases um, that occurred. In, in, the, in those maybe in schools and stuff like that. In the, in the, I think the government said, "Hey, look, we as a part of that um, when they put the terms of reference out for consultation, uh, they've said, "Hey, look, there was another part that was brought up was that that cut off, which is why they're extending it, but on a discretionary basis." You could, oh, for the going back to the churches, originally, if you were sent there by state by state care, that was included. Yeah, that's right. But yep. I think what. Yeah, um, Sonia Cooper was saying as well was that in Australia there was like a very high number of abuse that happened in religious institutions yeah. but in New Zealand there's there was more state care yeah. with you know children under state care so that you know as go back to your point it might yeah. not be 
as big of a difference that everyone sort of may think yeah. it is. It's surprising that they didn't perhaps think to include it right from the start. I mean, they, the Prime Minister sort of said, look, you know, just in terms of the um, number of submissions that were made, and this was a key mm. sort of reoccurring mm. theme. I mean, mm. you could have you could have seen that, foreseen that yeah, well, um, right she, from the start. She talked about that at, post, uh, at her post-Cabinet press conference this week, and she'd said, look, she had been of the view that she wanted it really narrow because... Uh, she wanted the state to be responsible for what the state had done, right? Oh. Whereas you, when you start bringing her, her feeling had been when you start bringing churches, the state didn't have any direct responsibility for that. You know, it kind of uh, so should it be heard as part of this this inquiry? But she said, look, they did listen to the you know the people who have made those submissions and they have decided um, to bring it in. And I think you know as we've watched it get closer to them announcing this royal commission, you know, some of the stories that I've seen uh, of the abuse that people have suffered in state care. You know, it just doesn't happen to them then. It has these flow-on effects for their lives and their children's lives and their families' lives. Um, you know, it's quite horrific what a lot of people have been through in state care. Mm. And so these reports, so there's going to be a report focused on state <coughs> care and a yep. report focused on religious institution and uh, the final one that's coming out. The is that going to be 2020? Is 2023. That right? um, 2023? Is, is when they're expecting the final report, which is when the Royal Commission will make recommendations Um as well is so it? I think they do have two earlier reports separated into the, the church the state and then the final one they're expecting January 2023 is that just due to the size of the inquiry yeah Why and I guess that? they're going to have to hear hundreds and hundreds of um, submissions and it may you know probably more people will come forward as well mm. so it's going to be sort of interesting to watch that and interesting I think also how they handle I know they're putting aside 15 million dollars um, <clears throat> to basically to for counselling and you know to basically help people through the process because I guess coming forward and speaking about it can bring up all sorts of other issues as well you know, um, mm. yeah, so they're going to have to tread delicately but I guess they'll be professional in that hmm. Okay um, and on to our next story um, is the uh, Wally Homaha um, inquiry uh, report into the process around his appointment let's take a look at that and we'll have a chat Four months in the making today, the inquiry into the appointment of Deputy Police Commissioner Wally Homaha, finding the process was adequate and fit for purpose. Mary Shelton's QC agreeing with the State Services Commission that reasonable steps were taken and Mr Homaha was fit for the job. I'm pretty confident from this report that the process that was followed here was a very robust one. In a statement, Mr Homaha said this afternoon, it has not been easy for anyone as I know from my own weeks and months waiting for the outcome. I'm especially grateful to my whānau and the many iwi leaders who have supported me and my family. So I have spoken to Wally today, uh, very much about next steps, where to from here. The report did find two important pieces of information were not available during the appointment process. The fact Louise Nicholas held significant concerns about Mr Homaha and that there existed people who believed they had been bullied by him in 2016. Crucially though, the report says neither were relevant to Mr Homaha's merits and in fact would only have been of public interest and therefore the interest of the interview panel as they risked undermining the process. The comments that Mr Homaha made in 2004 I know have concerned a lot of people. I just don't think he's right for that, that position. 
The investigation followed concerns raised by victim advocate Louise Nicholas over comments reportedly made by Mr Homaha in relation to her 1980s rape case. But the report says none of the allegations were ever put to Mr Homaha and notes the comments were second-hand and non-verbatim. I think there could be a lot of learnings come out of this and... Uh, and, and not just um, for, for police, but actually for, for Mr Homaha himself. The report concludes suggesting ways to identify unknown risks in future with the aim of avoiding publicity over appointments. Mikey, this is a story you've been following really closely um, you know, for months now. What did you make of the report that came out this week? Yeah, it was um, really interesting, a lot riding on this report, obviously, um, not just for Wally Homaha, but also politically. Um, we've seen this issue played out um, in the House a number of times um, in the last four months since this inquiry uh, was launched. Um, National Chris Bishop in particular um, has been going pretty hard on it um, mm. and sort of not just um, uh, focusing in on Labour, but also... Um, New Zealand first in terms of the links that they sort of uh, had with uh, Wally Homaha around that sort of appointment and, and so on. Um, but complete vindication, it seems, uh, here for the process. Um, obviously, this inquiry focused simply on the process um, of the appointment um, and uh, Mary Shelton's QC, who undertook the investigation, um, basically ruling it um, fit and proper um, and that everything was... Um, Everything that they needed to know, uh, they knew. Um, yep. Yeah, only a couple of points in there. Um, a couple of points in there that um, she said, obviously, and we've just heard in my track, but two points in there that perhaps the panel didn't know um, and they should have known were, were the concerns by Louise Nicholas and were the fact that there existed those people who um, alleged bullying um, by Wally Homaha in 2016. But um, interestingly enough, um, the report found that those two issues um, didn't necessarily sort of, would not have had any impact on his merit for the role. Right. Um, but just that um, looking around that sort of publicity, the potential for publicity around those issues and undermining the process, that was really interesting. Yeah. And it, but there's a separate um, investigation going on as well, isn't there? Because uh, in, into the IP, well, the IPCA, isn't there? Into <coughs> yes. Wally Homaha. So what what does that look at that this that this one doesn't? That <coughs> one look uh, that that uh, IPCA investigation is basically looking at the um, the complaints by two women that they were bullied by Wally Homaha in 2016. So obviously needing to still tread carefully around this issue because mm. that investigation <coughs> is still underway. I think we're expecting the final report back in another month. Um, so Wally Homaha very much um, not out of the woods yet um, on that. So obviously he would have cited uh, you know a sigh of relief um, mm. when, when this one came out but still very much um, under the pump just seeing what will come of that last um, investigation it was interesting to see that Mary Shelton's did touch on um, the bullying allegations in this report um, I was surprised by that given that there is another completely separate investigation solely focused in on that um, what did she and say? The woman, well the woman did um, sort of raised concern that perhaps she did stray too far into that brief around the bullying allegations um, and they wanted um, some of the information um, deleted from her report um, because they felt that it was going to um, 
uh, unfairly impact um, what is still being investigated at the moment. Um, but they were unsuccessful in that. Um, so yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see when this when this next IPC when this IPC a report uh, comes out, what that will show. Mm. Um, what did you make this week? I noticed ministers, several ministers, and the prime minister were asked if they still had confidence in Wally Homaha, and none of them. They all kind of fudged. They didn't really express. But could confidence you say in. that before that? There's been a, a before the reports. Released. Yeah, you, you, you could can't. end up with egg could on your you? face, right? Yeah. I, I agree. You can't. Yeah. Um, so um, Chris Hipkins um, and Stuart Nash yeah. were asked um, whether they had confidence in Wally Homaha following the release of this report, and they said, um, "Look, you know, they basically just sidestepped the issue, sidestepped the question. They didn't want to answer." But you, I, I thought at the at the time as well, you couldn't really answer that because he hasn't been cleared completely. The IPCA report um, hasn't come out; it's still being investigated. Those allegations of bullying, so you, it's it's hard to express <coughs> confidence in someone that is still under investigation. Interestingly enough, though, um, Mike Bush, the police commissioner, he did express confidence in Wally Homaha, no question, basically just said yes outright straight away. Um, so, yeah, see what happens with this next mm. report. And about a month away, you think? About a month away. Yeah. I expected the draft report back sort of this week or next and then final report in a month. Yeah. Hey, um, let's have a look at another story. Um, I think we did late last week, but it's a story that's been bubbling around for, I don't know, the last eight years at least. Have a look at this. It's eight years since prisoners were stripped of the right to vote. Today, a significant turning point for those fighting to be counted. To have a voice in society, to be able to um, manage what happens to my children, my grandchildren. Former inmate Hinemanu Taumata was one of five prisoners, including notorious jailhouse lawyer Arthur Taylor, who challenged the law in 2014. I spoke to Arthur Taylor today, and, and he's rejoicing now in the news. Lawyer Richard Francois says the road has been a long one. To actually finally achieve the result that we have been... Uh, seeking for so long is very, very gratifying. Following a High Court ruling that National's 2010 amendment to the Electoral Act disenfranchising prisoners did breach the Bill of Rights, it was appealed to the Supreme Court. Today the Supreme Court upheld the High Court findings stating courts do have the power to rule laws inconsistent with the Bill of Rights Act and that the ban on prisoner voting was an example of such a breach. Sometimes it's best not to appeal uh, and leave the matter dealt with in the lower courts. The higher up you go, the more authoritative the ruling. I've expressed a view publicly before. Um, I, I don't, I'm not a fan of the 2010 amendment. I think that is wrong. Despite such an admission, the current government says re-examining prisoner voting rights isn't a priority. There's no obligation on the government to do so. What it is looking at, though, is a parliamentary remedy. In the meantime, nothing changes for those behind bars still banned from exercising the right to vote. So this is a story I've been working on since, I think it was in journalism school back in 2015, and it's been, what I think is probably one of the most interesting aspects of this is what the gov now government, but previous opposition, were saying 
while this issue was really hot back in 2015. And we look back at some of the, so the now Deputy Labour leader, Calvin Davis, said at the time that Labour would restore the right for prisoners with sentences of less than three years to vote. But with Mikey's track, it's a little bit different now, isn't it? Seems yeah. like they're putting it a bit on the on the back burner, right? So I was looking through a few of the articles that you'd written on this, Anna, and like Grant Robertson would describe um, back in 2010. So uh, before 2010, prisoners who were in prison for less than three years could vote, and the National changed the law so that they couldn't vote once you're sentenced in, in prison at all, right? Uh, Grant Robertson at, at times said this was a disgraceful attack on democracy. He said it was spiteful and populist. Uh, Chris Hipkins uh, said it was absolutely not justified and uh, just marginalised communities even further. So it was quite interesting for me to go along to the Andrew Little stand-up last week as part of this story, uh, where he was like, yeah, it's not really a priority for the government, you know, we might get around to look at it sometime, you know, strong in opposition, but um, yeah. Weak in power, and that's why basically this was my pit, because that's a great example there. Good work, uh, Anna. Anna, yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of those comments that Labour MPs made while they were in opposition, calling it a disgrace and so on, and now they're in, in government, um, and now we've had the highest court in the land, the Supreme Court, basically say, yes, um, courts do have the right to um, declare um, law um uh, inconsistent with the Bill of Rights, which is what's happened in this case, um, and yet the government are saying that it's not a priority for them. And I just think, what? How how can that even be? Basically, I feel like there should be sort of a moral obligation, at the very least, um, to do something and to address this issue when we've got the court saying that it's inconsistent mm. with the Bill of Rights. And how can you know, for a, a government that talks about being kind and and standing up to morals, be okay with not being in line with the Bill of Rights. I just don't understand that. And I actually saw in one of the stories uh, after the High Court, court ruling, uh, I think that was uh, last year, Jacinda Ardern, who was the Labour Party justice spokesperson at the time, told the Herald that the ruling was a wake-up call for the then national government and said the ban was full of contradictions and inconsistencies. So, yeah. I feel like we might need to go back to uh, to these Labour uh, mm. now now ministers and prime ministers and, and so on and sort of put their former statements to them. Um, because at the moment, the government's priority is basically um, figuring out um, how to cover their backsides <laughs> um, well, in terms of when these declarations are made um, there needs to be a remedy e.g. what will the government do when courts make such declarations well, how will they um, how, how will they respond and that is the focus for the government Andrew Little saying that's the focus at the moment that's the priority is basically coming up with the process of how they deal with these declarations in the fu- into the future Chris Finlayson who was the Attorney General um, basically during the majority of this whole period when um, the Nats brought this in in 2010. Um, he, but he was throwing some major shade at Crown Law on this. He basically, and in that story I did put this one part in, where he said um, sometimes it's best to just let things lie at the lower courts because the higher you get, e.g. appealing it to the Supreme Court as they did and lost, um, the higher you go up um, in the courts, um, the more authoritative um, the ruling. So basically... Yeah. Um, 
n no sort of uh, moving, no space to move now. Um, the Supreme Court has ruled um, and upheld the High Court and basically, you know, that's that. Um, and he, so he was throwing shade. I said to him, um, it was, I, I said to him, oh, but you know, you guys, you brought it, it was brought in your name. He said, yeah, it was brought in my name, but I already um, voiced my concern right. um, that it did breach the Bill of Rights. Mm. Um, but um, obviously Crown Law had um, other views. And so, yeah, it was quite funny to sort of hear from Finlayson yeah. dishing some, some, dishing up some shade. Um, anyway, in terms of shade, I don't know how shady it is um, over there uh, in Singapore PNG. In terms of the weather, not shady like in dodgy. <laughs> but um, um, we, uh, Jessica Much Mackay is at APEC, um, and we're going to have a look at a uh, throwback on one of those tracks right now. I'm a real wild one. Wild one. Wild one. Wild one. Ah, the Philippines, 1996, and Clinton, bless him, leading a Mexican wave. No, Jim, we said Mexican wave, not just any old wave. Oh, well. Another year, another shot at it. Canada, Bulger's last appearance on the world stage. Shouldn't have stuffed up that wave. Mm-mm, $900 leather jackets, and what do you know? Bulger zipped his up. Nice. 1998 and APEC hits Malaysia and the men's club gets its very first woman and yes, to Kit Shipley out like the blokes, they did have to ship an extra fabric. Oh, sweet. The following year it's our turn. How'd you guess? Hard with all that black, eh? Oh, and the telltale fern. Clinton though makes it look a bit Texan, what with the cowboy belt buckle and that strut. So into 2000, Brunei, and you could be mistaken for thinking this was a parade of factory workers, ex-cons or training cops. Original, the blue shirt. This would have to be China, 2001 and President Bush looking scarily like the freaky guy you so didn't want turning up to your pyjama party. Um, thanks waiter, I'll have a coke. Oh no, hang on, you're the Prime Minister. Nice napkin. And those sunglasses, Helen, styling. And so, 2002. Bye-bye, Mexico. Hello, Bangkok, 2003. And they might have just reworked the China outfits in a bit of brown, which was, of course, at the time, the new black. Hmm, whatever. And so, 2004. Oh, Chile, well done. Ponchos are back, are they? But not the rug kind, sadly. Look at Bush whispering to Howard. Do you think this makes my bum look big? So some um, crazy outfits. And as someone is, who quite likes wearing... Um, Crazy shirts from time to time. I yeah, quite enjoyed the um, outfits our political leaders have had to don over the years. And it will be interesting um, to see what they uh, end up wearing in Singapore and at uh, APEC in, in PNG. I think mm -hmm. what we haven't seen is some uh, sequins. Haven't seen any sequins, so wouldn't mind seeing a bit of, bit of sparkle, yeah. a, bit of, bit of, bit of shine, shimmer and shine. Um, I, my favourite, if I had to pick one from that lineup, would probably be the leather jackets. Yeah, um, the brown leather jackets. I thought those are pretty cool. Mm. And yeah. I wonder if um, uh, you know who's going to get to ride in the Maseratis that they've um, Papua New Guinea's <laughs> bought the 40, 40 Maseratis um, <clears throat> for APEC. It'll be. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing um, the footage of those. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, hey, it's been great to have you with us. This was Inside Parliament, our weekly catch-up about the political stories that we've been covering on um, One News. We're also on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. It's available every Thursday evening on the One News Facebook page and check us out on your favourite podcasting app. See you guys. Yeah.